Hi there, dear listener. Lazlo here with a quick pre-roll message for you. Before we get started, I want to let you know there are all kinds of convenient ways for you to support my efforts to bring you all these podcast shows on Chinese history, Chinese sayings, and tea history. If you go to my website at teacup.media and click the support button at the top, you'll find a bunch of ways to show some appreciation. There's Patreon, where you can get early access to new episodes, exclusive content, and an invite to the Teacup Media Discord channel, and more. CHP Premium, that also has early access, exclusive episodes, and ad-free versions of the entire CHP back catalog. Plus, there's several other ways to donate to the show as well. Check the episode show notes for a link to that very page. And my deepest thanks for listening and supporting me and my humble efforts. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Laszlo Montgomery here with one more halfway decent and interesting Chinese saying, the penultimate of this second season. This Chung Yu's a little more upbeat than the last two, but not without its share of tragedy. We don't have to go back too far in this episode, relatively speaking, that is. We're only at the dismal conclusion of the Northern Song and its aftermath down in Hangzhou. Most of our Chongyu are rooted in the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, Spring and Autumn and Warring States periods, but not this one. It took place a good 1,500 years after those feudalistic times. Today we're going to look at Qin Si He Ming. Not sure if any of you have heard that one before. doesn't make it to any top ten lists as far as I know. Qin Si He Ming. Let's do what we always do. Qin... Yeah, same qin as duenyo tan qin, play a lute to an ox. And last week's ren qin, ju wang, both man and lute have perished. Qin could be a general term for a stringed instrument, but today it's always referred to as a seven-stringed gu qin. And then there's another new instrument for you called a si. This is a bigger instrument with anywhere from 25 to 50 strings. This musical instrument went all the way back to the Zhou dynasty, so it's as ancient as the Gu Qin. So, Qin Si, the Qin and the Si. Then there's He, just like from the previous episode, Qu Gao He Gua. If the tune is too highfalutin, ain't no one gonna sing it. Although I don't think my Cheng Yu Zidian put it quite that way. In the fourth tone, that character means to join in the singing, or to chime in with others. And last character, Ming, we've come across this one before. Remember from season one? Ji Ming Go Dao. Crow like a cock and snatch like a dog. To use low-handed tricks to get what you want. We're using the same Ming. It means of birds, insects, and mammals to cry out or to crow. But in our case today, it means more like to sing or to make a sound. Qin Si He Ming. The Qin and the Si sing along sound. Not terribly revealing, is it? So you know what that means. We're left with no choice except to dig below the surface to uncover the story from whence this Chengyu sprang. And once this story is told, these four characters that appear randomly selected out of a hat, all of a sudden they make perfect sense. The story, as I said, took place during some of the darkest hours of the Song Dynasty. These years during the 1120s were covered in the previous China History Podcast, episode 23, on the Song Dynasty, and then again in more gory detail in that four-part series on the Huizong Emperor. Although our story takes place during the Song, 
the source of the material came from a Yuan Dynasty collection of poems called the Ailan Shen. Couldn't dig up too much on that. The two main characters of today's story were far from a couple of nobodies, Zhao Mingcheng and Li Qingzhao. Zhao Mingcheng lived from 1081 to 1129 and was a giant in the field of ancient Chinese epigraphy. Yeah, I know, what's that? Epigraphy is the study of ancient inscriptions, words and symbols that are carved into substrates like stone or metal. He was also quite accomplished in the arts and letters and came from a respectable lineage that, well, today could have got him a ground floor table at the Lokyu Tea House in Hong Kong. Li Ching Chao is ranked as among the greatest female poets in all of Chinese history. And let me say, that's quite a claim to fame. He had to be pretty darn good to share that superlative. She lived 1084 to 1155. So you can see she lived 26 years longer than Zhao Mingcheng. They were both from Shandong province. Li Qingzhao also had quite a background. Her father had studied under no less a superstar than Su Dongpo Su Shi, who we featured in a standalone episode, CHP 175. Her father was an amazing scholar, and like many a Song-era literatus, he had a pretty decent library. And Li Qingzhao grew up amongst all these books and soaked up all she could from them. She was incredible, and already in her teens it was said she was very much admired for her poetry. She was quite a favorite in the more elite circles of aristocrats. The two met, Zhao was 20 and Li was 18. In 1101, they married, and to call this a match made in heaven would be the understatement of the century. These two were in love and devoted to each other like you cannot believe. And to top it all off, as if this true love they had for each other wasn't enough, they both shared this passion for epigraphy and would scour the markets together, looking for any inscriptions that they could study together and add to their museum-quality collection. Sometimes Zhao Mingcheng would arrive home wearing almost nothing because well, it wasn't unusual for him to pawn the clothes on his back in order to acquire some piece or another that he saw in some antiques market. When Zhao Mingcheng received his degree and began his career as an official in the northern Song bureaucracy, he wasn't making much money. But even in their relative poverty, you couldn't find a happier couple. When they were together, they would sit side by side and decipher these old inscriptions. They'd practice calligraphy together, paint, engage in witty repartee, and sing couplets to each other, replying to the other in the most elegant and poetic ways. Oh, man, they had a blast together. So in love, the preacher's face turned red. Together, they collaborated on the work that Zhao Mingcheng is most remembered for. The Jin Shi Lu, a 30-volume work that was revered as the greatest academic milestone in Chinese epigraphy going back to the Shang Dynasty. So this happy couple lived in sheer and utter conjugal bliss for many years. And then, in the 1120s, trouble came from the north. The Jurchens, who later on would be known as the Manchus, flooded out of their lands in Manchuria and put an end to what became known as the Northern Song Dynasty. By 1127, it was all over, and the magnificent Song capital city of Kaifeng was reduced to cinders, and the entire royal family 
was sent packing to the coldest, most desolate parts of Heilongjiang to live out the rest of their lives. And Zhao Mingcheng and Li Qingzhao, they fled south, first to Nanjing. One Song Dynasty royal had gotten away and reconstituted the dynasty down in present-day Hangzhou, and so began the Southern Song. Now, like so many other northerners who fled for their lives in terror, Zhao Mingcheng and Li Qingzhao had to sort of start their lives all over. Like other ethnic minorities who are forced to flee in the middle of the night, they could only cart away a limited amount of their vast possessions, including their collection. And in their haste to put as many tracks as possible between them and the Jurchens, they had to dump plenty of stuff along the way. Whatever was left behind so lovingly and painstakingly sorted, studied, and cared for was destroyed by the Jurchens. Though the happy couple survived that national trauma, Zhao Mingcheng didn't bounce back from the Jurchen invasion, and he died in 1129. He left behind his unfinished work, the Jin Shi Lu, as well as all the research that still needed to be done with all the couple's various epigraphic pursuits. So Li Qingzhao was heartbroken. Her beloved husband, Zhao Mingcheng, was gone. The man who had always been an inspiration for many of her greatest poems. He had been more than a soulmate, and losing him so young punched a giant hole in her life. What could she do except keep on keeping on? She moved to Hangzhou, one of China's great centers of the arts and letters. She continued to produce her poetry. She helped to finish off the Jin Shi Lu. She lived plainly until her dying day honored and cherished the memory of her husband, Zhao Mingcheng. She had experienced a roller coaster life filled with the greatest happiness and the most miserable despair. Anyone who lived through the Jurchen invasion didn't have it easy, if they survived at all. It was a shocking upheaval and ended up being only a dress rehearsal for the Mongol invasion 140 years later. So you can now see the meaning of this idiom, Qin Si He Ming. The two instruments, Qin Si, represent Zhao Mingcheng and Li Qingzhao. He Ming, singing songs back and forth. Qin Si, He Ming. That describes a perfect relationship, especially a marriage. Perfect harmony and conjugal bliss. Qin Si, He Ming. If you can say this about the relationship you're in now, then Gong Xi Ni, Mazel Tov, and congratulations. What can be better than that? In Li Qingzhao, this great poet, about 60 to 100 of her poems managed to make it to our day. As I said, like Muhammad Ali, people called her the greatest. Okay, Laszlo Montgomery signing off for a ninth time this musical season. You know where I'm recording this. It isn't the professional recording studio, I'm sure you can tell that. There's more where this came from, so please please me. And do come back next time for another nice, tasty Chengyu here at the Chinese Sayings Podcast.